The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please take your copy of the scriptures and open to Acts chapter 9. Today we're beginning at verse 32. When I was growing up at uh, Living Word Assembly in Chanute, Kansas, the children would, would occasionally sing for the church body. We've done that occasionally here as well. It's a holdover from my childhood. When I was about five years old, uh, my class was responsible for singing a song for the church called Rise and Shine and Give God the Glory. And as we were singing that song, uh, all the little kids were lined up you know, across the front and uh, we were supposed to be doing the dance moves and all those things. And I was immediately distracted because in the church where I grew up, there was a cutout in the front of the stage where there were stairs all along the, the sides, but then there was a cutout and there was a, like a table there for the Lord's Supper. But there was this spot in between where it opened into this cave of wonders underneath the stage. And I had never noticed it before until I was standing up there singing these songs. And instead of doing the dance moves, I immediately was obviously focused on this enormous cave that was present beside me. And so I began this miniature rebellion of getting all of the kids to look and start to climb into this little hole. And, uh, you know, we had uh, one of these great singers, great piano players, Miss Gordon, who was responsible for leading the music, but she was also terrifying to children, and we didn't even care. We didn't even notice. We didn't see her. We didn't, she, and the whole church is losing it. They are cracking up. They think it's hilarious. It's the best thing that has happened all day to them, and we are just completely ignoring Rise and Shine and Give God the Glory. So there's a video of this somewhere where there's the one person singing is the, the teacher, all the kids are now climbing under the stage. I didn't really care what it meant to rise and shine and give God the glory. I just cared about this newfound exploration that I had discovered. But in our text today, we're actually going to get a sense of the meaning behind those very simple children's lyrics. So follow along in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There... He found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. 
Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mighty works. We thank you for the miraculous things that take place in this passage, that you were the one working those miraculous deeds. But Lord, we thank you all the more for the miraculous things you are doing in the hearts and souls of people here in this room, drawing them to yourself. And Lord, I ask that even today, that as you are working through your word, you would cause us to be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we desperately need you. We are a selfish people. We are an ignorant people without you. And we desperately require that your Holy Spirit change us. So God, I ask that you would soften our hearts. You would help us to have ears to hear. And God, I pray that today there would be special application that we would hear in our own hearts from the Holy Spirit to know how exactly to apply this in a practical way immediately without delay. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This book is called The Acts of the Apostles. But it mainly only focuses in on two apostles, right? I mean, we have the first half of the book functionally operates as a story of Peter, and the second half then leaves and follows along with the the works of Paul. As you certainly noticed, the camera at this point has shifted away from Paul or Saul of Tarsus and has resumed his position on the life of Peter. He's the chief apostle, And he is the de facto leader of every major outpouring of God's spirit to a new people group in this book. First, we saw him at the helm when the Holy Spirit came and broke in in the day of Pentecost. And he went outside when Jerusalem was in that marketplace and he preached and 3,000 people were saved. Remember remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, here we see Jerusalem. The gospel breaks in. Then it was Peter who went to confirm the new Christian movement in Samaria, and the Holy Spirit fell on them when he arrived. And now the text is preparing the readers for this great watershed moment in human history. Today's text is functionally just a prologue to the boundless grace that is about to be extended to the Gentiles in chapter 10. But in the midst of this last section of chapter 9, God is leading Peter further and further away from Jerusalem and closer to his eventual Gentile target, even though Peter doesn't fully understand that is the reason God is leading him there yet. Now today, we are going to mine out three primary points from this text. Point number one, helping. Point number two, healing. And point number three, hospitality. We'll begin with helping. It is worthwhile remembering that for the most part, Peter and the other apostles had remained in Jerusalem after the great persecution arose. They didn't go anywhere when everyone else began to disperse. However, when Saul sailed away to Tarsus, the violent aggression of the religious rulers seemed to sail away with him, leaving the church in a time of peace. That's where we left off last week. That is when Peter determined that it would be a good time now to make his way through the outer regions of Judea and Samaria in order to encourage all the believers who had been dispersed and who were now popping up in these various locations. That's why we read in verse 32, Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. For those of you who grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church or in the Roman Catholic Church, 
or in a family who holds to those traditions or in a culture of those traditions, you're going to find that the picture of Peter that is presented here quite different from those. Scripture is radically different than what those places teach. Peter is not locked away in some palace surrounded by wealth. If any of you have ever been to Rome and have gone to Vatican City, then you will know that there's something very different happening here than what we see happening in that location. He is not too lofty to spend his days with the average lowly believers in these small towns and communities. He is not transported around in some mobile. He is, in fact, in this chapter and the next two chapters, we are going to see him presented in a way that is virtually irreconcilable with Roman Catholic teaching. So as we cross those moments where Peter stands in contradiction to that view, I'm going to be sure to point them out. One such moment is found right here in verse 32, when it says that Peter is now visiting the saints at Lydda. Lydda was a relatively small but relatively wealthy city that was right at the crossroads of two very important trade routes. And it's still there today. In fact, if you've ever been to Israel, then you've been to Lydda, because that is where the airport flies in, right outside of Tel Aviv. So it seems to have this small Christian community there, and most likely the gospel came there when Philip went from the road to Ethiopia and went to Caesarea. Um, Gene, if you could for me, just throw up that, um, that map that we have of this region. So here's a little picture of what we're looking at from Jerusalem to Lydda to Joppa. These are the locations that are represented in our text today. However, if you remember Philip, when he went to uh, see the Ethiopian eunuch, he would have been down here. And if you go from Lydda and go about directly north, 20 miles, that's where you'll find Caesarea. So remember when Philip talked to the Ethiopian eunuch, he started way down here, and it says that he went through every village and town speaking about the goodness of God. And so it seems that the church in Lydda, which was on the main route for him to get there, and then the route would go all the way to the Sea of Joppa and then go north, those two churches were probably started by Philip. That is what most scholars tend to believe. But notice who it is that Peter is going to visit. He is going to visit the saints, This is the first of about 40 uses of this particular form of the Greek word, which simply means holy ones. It is always used in reference to normal Christian communities. For example, look how Paul addresses the entire church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, meaning the elders and deacons. And so here, the book is clearly not addressed just to church leaders. It is addressed to the entire congregation. As we see evidenced in chapter four, when Paul gives instructions about getting along with one another. This is not just for the leaders. It is not for some special sect of super holy saints. If you are in Christ, you have been made holy. You have been made a saint. The word holy, or the word saint rather, just means holy ones. First Timothy chapter one, verse nine explains your position as a saint this way. He says, he saved us and called us to a holy calling. Actually, that word holy calling means saintly calling. And then we see that he has done this for the purpose, uh, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And Paul then later will address the Colossian church with this charge that helps to illuminate the reason that we are called saints even further. He says, 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. When he refers to us as holy and beloved, that word holy is literally the word saints. He says, you are set apart ones. You are holy ones. You are saints. And he is here again speaking to the entirety of the congregation. Therefore, it means that you have been given his righteousness and therefore you are viewed as holy. This word saint is very important. Remember to be cautious when communicating with those who are still caught in Roman Catholicism. We often use identical theological vocabulary, but we do not share a theological dictionary. Words matter, but so do their definitions. But let's return now to the point at hand. Peter is dedicated to personal ministry. He is not just standing in front of crowds of thousands and seeing thousands come to salvation. The first section of the book primarily focused in on these large perspectives of this 30,000 foot view of what was happening in the church. But now in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see this very personal way that God is working through people like Philip and like Saul of Tarsus and like Ananias and now like Peter, where they are personally being involved in the daily needs of people's lives. Here we see this very personal aspect of the ministry of Peter. He had dedicated himself to the members of the Christian faith. And his ministry included serving in a sort of itinerant shepherding way where he was going around from town to town and traveling around serving those who had followed Christ. I personally imagine Lydda, this city, being somewhat similar to the church that Ashley and I recently visited in northern Italy when we went to see our missionaries Jesse and Jerry V. The church there where Jesse is now pastoring, is a small church filled with young believers. When I say young, I don't mean young in age. I mean young in terms of their knowledge of Christ. They have a very limited understanding of the Bible, and they have a million questions. One of the great things about new Christians is that they just have so much that they can learn so quickly because they currently don't know much at all. And these people would have had very limited knowledge of the Bible. And Peter would have been an immense help to them as he went and he shared with them the stories of how he had walked personally with Jesus and how he recounted the sermons of Jesus. Can you imagine sitting there at the feet of Peter saying, just tell me what you know. Tell me what you saw. Tell me what Jesus said. Tell me again what he did. And Peter makes a point to the people in both of the epistles that he writes to remind the readers, I am an eyewitness of these events. He makes a big deal about that fact. I was an eyewitness. And so imagine as he was going, the joy that would come from him saying, you want to know about Jesus? Let me tell you what he said when I was walking with him one day right through this region. I'm certain that these new believers were abundantly helped as Peter shared with them exactly who Jesus is and what he came to earth to accomplish. And Peter, when someone knocked on the door and said, hey, come quickly, somebody died over in Joppa, notice that he gets up immediately and he walks about 10 miles to take part in the funeral of a person that he has likely never met, probably never even heard about. But Peter is not the only one in this chapter who is highlighted for his service. Later, we read about this woman who died, Tabitha, who is also called Dorcas. Let's just consider her name for a moment. Tabitha and Dorcas mean the exact same thing. They both mean gazelle. Tabitha is just Aramaic and Dorcas is Greek. And Luke probably included the Greek translation of the name 
because she probably went by both, just like we see Cephas is the name for Peter, and he also goes by Peter. And likely here, she is living in this port city of Joppa, where she would have had many opportunities to interact with people, both who were Jewish and those who were not, in other words, using both names. And this name is in both languages, was given to somebody who exuded beauty. This probably was not her birth name. This was a name that was often given to people who were physically beautiful and had much poise, often very wealthy people. It was somebody who was delicate yet powerful and swift, thus the name Gazelle. It's evident from the text that she was a woman of status and a woman of wealth. Verse 36 describes her as full of good works and acts of charity. Acts of charity here actually contains the original Greek word for giving of alms. This means, combined with the fact that her house had a large upper room, that she probably had a lot of money. Most likely, she was the wife of a wealthy tradesman. Joppa was a port city, and there weren't very many port cities because of the rocky kind of coastline that they had around that region. So most likely, this woman was very wealthy. But notice, she didn't use that as a way to segregate herself away from the body of Christ that was less fortunate than herself. Notice she gave of what she had to serve and to love those who were around her. Not only did she do good works and not only did she give to charity, she literally made clothing for the widows who were in her church. Verse 39 says, and when he arrived, Peter, they took him to the upper room and all the windows the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Clothing was much more challenging to make before the advent of modern electronic looms. I don't sew and I certainly don't make clothes for myself, but occasionally one of Ashley's relatives will actually send us homemade hats or gloves or socks or pajamas that they create, that they knit or that they sew themselves for our kids for Christmas. And I know that those items are very special because they represent hours upon hours of careful, thoughtful work on their part. It is difficult and takes a lot of love and painstaking effort to put together clothing that is the right size and the right fit and the right style for the right person. And Tabitha was clearly dedicated as a sister in Christ who loved her fellow sisters who were in need. She didn't just go buy them stuff. She literally worked hard to make it for them. Now, at this funeral, these people had a tangible reminder of her Christ-like love toward them. And I want to ask you a question. What kind of legacy of love are you leaving behind? At your funeral, what are people going to remember about your acts of kindness towards them? This was not my intention this morning. The Holy Spirit seems to keep working this out in just this incredible way where I did not tell Rocky what to say when he came forward this morning, but God did. And when Rocky was sharing with you, he was saying much of what later Mike was going to say and what I was about to say right here. This is what we are called to do for one another. Ministry is about people. It is serving people. Jesus certainly understood this as he gave his life to be around them, to spend time with them, to take these 12 guys on a three-year camping trip where he shared with them daily, not just in teaching them, but in sharing his life with them. Here we see the same thing in the life of Peter, sharing lives with these people who theologically were far below him. In terms of spiritual maturity, were far below him. In terms of authority, far below him. But he didn't view them that way. They were his brothers and sisters in Christ. And here we see also with this woman, Tabitha, who in terms of her socioeconomic status, these people were far below her. 
Yet she does not consider that a reason for separation, but views these women as her sisters and loves them and gives to them of what she can. We are called to use whatever gifts that we have to serve the body around us. And as Rocky said earlier, and as Mike repeated, you're doing well at this in many ways. I want to encourage you to continue to strive for genuine fellowship, genuine community, seeing needs and meeting them, just like Christ did for us. As basic as it sounds, this text should remind us that Christians are called to love one another with whatever gifts we've been given. Like I said, I don't sew, and if I made you clothing, you would not wear it, and you would not like it. I will give you other kinds of gifts, whatever I can give. Your gifts, whatever they might be, use them to the glory of God. Point number two, healing. There are two miracles, these miraculous events that occur here in this very short passage, and both of them mirror events that took place in the life of Jesus. The way that we're going to examine these miracles is to compare them and contrast them with Jesus' earlier miracles. Then we're actually going to zoom forward a little bit, and we're going to compare and contrast them with Paul's ministry, and finally, we are going to compare and contrast them with how we are called to minister with others. Why should we do this? Because the topic of healing is a complicated one. It is one that fills people with many questions. So we want to consider what's going on here in this text and what it teaches us. The first miracle is the healing of a man with some form of paralysis, this man Aeneas. The man had been confined to his mat for eight years. If I sleep for like eight hours or 10 hours, I wake up and I'm all creaky and can't hardly move and have to stretch out. Imagine not being able to get up and really move on your own for eight years. This calls back to the man in Mark 2 who was lowered through the ceiling by his four friends. Mark 2 verses 9 through 12 tells us about the conclusion of that event when Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The second miracle is the healing of Tabitha. And this corresponds with striking similarity to Jesus resurrecting a small girl in Mark chapter 5. Here's just a snippet of that event. We begin in Mark chapter 5, verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Let's first consider some similarities here between Jesus and Peter in these passages. Peter seems to be intentionally borrowing from Jesus' words when he tells the man, get up, rise, take your mat. Likewise, when Peter was surrounded by mourners, he removed them from the room before performing the miracle, just like Jesus. And perhaps the most striking linguistic similarity is the wording that Peter uses to call this girl back to life. 
He tells her in the original language, Tabitha Kumi. This is literally just one letter away from what Jesus said when he said, Talitha Kumi. Talitha, by the way, was not that girl's name in Mark chapter 5. Rather, it was a term of endearment. There was something like sweetheart or darling. It actually meant, means little lamb. And here he says kumai, which means arise. So when he says Talitha Kumi, and then when he says Tabitha Kumi, it is almost as close as you get. Now Peter is in the room with a dead body, and he says nearly the exact same words. Instead of little lamb, little gazelle, arise. And immediately life is restored to her body. But there's a substantial difference in these miracles of Peter and the miracles of Jesus. There's something that strikingly stands out and should be very noticeable to anyone who carefully reads them. The contrast boils down to the question of authority. Who is actually doing the work here? When Jesus healed, he did so based on his own power. Peter has no power to do this kind of stuff. He has no ability in himself. He has no power to say to someone who is dead, get up. Notice Peter's words to that man who made his home on that mat for eight years. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. In Mark 2, Jesus was using the miracle of healing this bedbound man to show that he also had the power to forgive sins. Jesus was allowing just a glimpse of his eternal power to touch the earth, to reverse the curse of sickness in that man's body so that he might show them I have the power not only to do this, but also to forgive sins. And he was rightly drawing all the attention to himself. But Peter, he does the exact opposite. He deflects the attention. He never claims to have any power of his own. He did nothing. He was simply the happy messenger who had the privilege of verbally expressing what Jesus was already doing that very moment. Peter took no credit. Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you. The second miracle reveals a similar humility in Peter. The most clear and notable contrast is that Jesus did not pray over the 12-year-old girl in Mark chapter 5. But when Peter was finally able to clear that room and to sit down next to that dead body, I am sure this man was overwhelmed with his sense of inadequacy. If you've ever been to a funeral and you've stood there before a casket and you see that lifeless body before you, you felt that similar kind of inadequacy. No matter how much you might want them to, they're not going to sit up. You have no ability to call them to life. There is nothing that you could say or do to incite them to move or to breathe or to talk to you one more time. There is nothing that you have in you that could possibly make any change in their current state. They are dead. Peter could not do this. I'm sure when he bowed his knees, he was certainly aware of the fact that he had nothing in him that was able to bring this girl back to life. But Peter had seen Jesus raise that little girl. He had been in that room, just he and these two others, James and John. He was present when Jesus said to Letha Kumi. He was there and he watched the king of the universe restore life into that little body. And now Peter knew that Jesus, who was alive with him then, was just as alive and present with him in that moment, in that room with Tabitha, just like he had been so many years earlier. And Peter got down on his knees and he prayed. And it was only after praying that he got up and said those words, Tabitha Kumi. Now, I'm not really sure what to think about the people of Joppa here. I, I don't really know what their motivation was or their expectation was. What exactly did they think Peter was going to do? Some commentators think that they actually called Peter there with the expectation that he would come and do this exact miracle. I, I find that very unlikely. 
In the history of the world, only two people had ever raised somebody from the dead, Elijah and Jesus. And now Jesus had done that with three separate people on three separate occasions, but Peter had never done anything like this before. And there was nobody that would have told them that Peter could do this for certain. So I lean in the direction of scholars who believe that these people had simply become new Christians and they were recent to the faith and they were inviting Peter to comfort them and perhaps to teach them about what happens when a Christian dies. It's very possible that this was the first believer since the initiation of that church who had ever gone forth to be with the Lord. What do we need to know about the afterlife, Peter? What does it look like when a Christian enters glory? What can you tell me about her? Is she in the presence of Jesus now? I think perhaps that's the most likely explanation of why he was there. Also to bring comfort and joy to those who are currently discouraged and sad and suffering that this matriarch of the church, as so many call her, this one who loved them so well is now gone away. Many scholars believe that this upper room where she was is most likely the place where the church regularly met. They probably gathered in her home and now she is gone. Are they still going to be able to meet in this location? Regardless of why it is that Peter came, what they were expecting, it's clear that Jesus answers Peter's prayer and Jesus carried out a miracle that nobody could deny. But this should lead us to the question, is this something that we should be doing today? Should we be going to paralyzed people and telling them to jump out of their hospital beds? And should we be going to funeral homes and be expecting Christian women to jump out of their caskets? Should we be expecting these things? One of the ways to answer that question is by seeing how the progression of redemptive history moves forward away from this point through the later parts of this book and the rest of the New Testament. So for this morning, I'm going to compare and contrast Peter's miracles here with the ministry of Paul, which I think can be helpful. On the one hand, Paul does several miracles of healing. He heals a crippled man in Acts chapter 14. He raises a young boy from the dead in Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 19, we see that multitudes of people were being healed by him in Ephesus. In many ways, he was being paralleled there with Peter with the miraculous things he was doing. So certainly, Paul had an incredible healing ministry. But we also see that this is not something Paul did based on his own exertion or foresight or plans. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul tells his young protege, no longer only drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Essentially, what is he saying here? Tim, take your medicine. Do what's right for your body. You need to be physically caring for yourself. He did not say, Timothy, I know you've been having some stomach issues. You've got some indigestion. There's no such thing as his tums being created yet. So I'm going to pray for you and God will take all of that away. No, he says instead, drink a little bit of wine. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul was giving his final ex explanations and he says, Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. If this guy could heal anybody he wanted, this is horrible. Why would you say, hey, you know what, Trophimus? I don't really want you being around me because you're sick. I could heal you if I wanted to, but you know what? You just stick around here and we'll see how it goes. Now, it's clear that if he could have healed anyone at any time that he wanted, he would have certainly healed his friend and his fellow preacher of the gospel, Trophimus. So what do we see next occurring here? Philippians chapter two, Epaphras. Remember this man who carried the, the message and the money from the, the cities back and forth to Paul? Epaphras was nearly dead. 
He was so sick that the people of his hometown were terrified that he was going to die. And so he remains for an additional amount of time with Paul so that he might recover. And now Paul is sending him back home. Why does Paul not just heal him? Paul never healed him as far as we can tell. And the most glaringly obvious example is that Paul had some kind of thorn in his flesh that he references, which almost certainly is speaking about some kind of physical ailment. And he prayed three times that God would remove this from him. And he was told every time, no. So it's evident that this kind of miraculous power was not done at will. There is a major distinction between Jesus and the apostles in this way. But what about us? Are we supposed to even pray for people to be healed? What about prayers that people would rise from the dead? Are we supposed to do that? The answer to the first question is yes, we should pray for people to be healed. This is made plain to us because we are commanded to do this and pray for the sick. In particular, one location we see this, James chapter 5, verse 14 through 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him pray, uh, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Clearly, we are supposed to pray for people who are sick. It is a command of the New Testament. But it is certainly interesting that there is never any New Testament place, any location or passage or scripture where we are told to pray for the dead to come back to life. Acts chapter 9 is certainly descriptive of Peter's ministry, but it is not prescriptive for ours. But we still have not considered the most important miracle that occurs here in this passage. Certainly, we're not going to be praying for people to come back from the dead. And certainly, we will pray for those who are sick until we see an answer from the Lord, whether yes or no. But there's something much greater occurring here in these verses. If you were to set these two healings side by side, it is almost guaranteed that anybody, even a child, would view raising Tabitha from the dead as the greater miracle. If you were going to say, which one is more significant, more powerful, more amazing, everybody would say, yes, raising this girl from the dead. That was the most powerful. But that body that she was eventually going to, that she came back into eventually wore out and she died again. We have no idea how much more time she had. Maybe she lived another 30 days. Maybe she lived another 30 years. We have no clue. But it didn't last forever. We do know that. But in this text, we read about a greater miracle that occurred after the healings. In verse 35, we read, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, which by the way, Sharon is just this long valley that goes north of the city, that all the people of these two places saw him, Aeneas that is, and they turned to the Lord. And after Tabitha was raised, we read in verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The kingdom of God was advancing further and further out from Jerusalem. And in the next chapter, God is going to blow the doors off and the kingdom of God is going to flood across the map. But even in this little tiny text today, we see that God was using these grandiose, miraculous events to grab the attention of many people so that they might hear the message of the cross and so that they might believe. I am certain here that Tabitha gave all the glory to God for her resurrection it must be an odd thing to know that your body was literally dead and being carried around and washed by people who were expecting to put you into the ground and bury you. It must have been an odd thing for her to open her eyes knowing that she had been dead moments before, but it must be a glorious thing to know that you have more days to serve your king here on earth. Earlier I mentioned that cheesy song that kids are singing you know, all over the world today, this rise and shine and give God the glory. 
please know that the only way that we can rise and have new life is if Christ first shines on us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian today, it is because God has done this for you, that he has caused Christ to shine on you. Death is dead, love is won, Christ is conquered. That is why the sting of death has been destroyed. We also have a promise of this final resurrection that in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, we read these words. Sorry, I have sticky fingers today. Here Jesus is speaking to those who were, particularly Martha, whose brother had died. And in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Here what we see taking place is those who are in Christ receive a particular kind of resurrection. That you're physically going to die but there is new life that exists in you and new life that you can look forward to after you stop breathing. Colossians chapter three speaks to the reality that every Christian has currently been raised with Christ. This is not something that is only future. Consider what it says, Colossians chapter three, verse one. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Do you see what he's saying here? This is a present reality for you. You have been raised with Christ. Not only have you been crucified with him, Galatians chapter 2.20, if you are a Christian, you have been raised. Pastor Mike mentioned this earlier today. The baptism that we, uh, uh, that we use here, this baptism by immersion is designed by God to be a picture of this reality that you die with Christ, have been crucified and buried. There is something that is radical that has transformed you and now you have been raised to newness of life with Jesus. If you are a Christian, you have already experienced a resurrection that has brought you now to eternal life. This is key for you to recognize. Your new eternal life does not begin the day that you stop breathing. It begins the day that Jesus redeemed you. So we always have spiritual resurrection, but we also experience future physical resurrection. This is one of the mysteries of the Christian life, something that we won't fully comprehend or know until we experience it on the last day. But we read about it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, or goes into the ground, is perishable. Your physical body is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And, and as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you see what he's saying here? To summarize it, do you remember when Jesus walked through a wall into the presence of those people who were in that upper room? to those disciples who were trembling and afraid and he presented himself as alive and he ate fish with them and he did things that were miraculous where occasionally they would recognize his face and occasionally they wouldn't. What in the world is going on? He has this kind of supernatural body, this kind of body that is different than the ones we currently have where there is never going to be any disease or decay. It is a body that it will only experience life the way God originally intended it to be experienced. This is an incredible promise for the future for or anybody who has ever had back pain or sickness or illness or is moving closer and closer towards the grave, which is every one of us every day. The older you get, the closer you feel it. This body is fading away. It is limited in its scope and in its purpose, but there is a body you will receive that will be everlasting. We are promised this kind of resurrection. Tabitha, praise God, she woke up. He resuscitated her in that sense. She had life again for a few more years. But praise God even more that she had spiritual life that would never end. And now she is with the Lord with, this, with a heavenly body that will never experience judgment or death again. Perhaps you're here and you're wondering, why am I here? You don't believe anything that I'm saying right now, but you came here because of some family tradition or some cultural requirement. And spiritually, you're more dead than Tabitha was physically dead in this book that we're reading about right now. Nothing I can say will wake you up. Nothing I can say can convince you. You are going to continue to pursue your own way unless God enlightens your heart and your mind to believe the gospel. So allow me to share with you very briefly what the gospel is and why we pray to that end, that God would open your eyes. <clears throat> just like Tabitha opened her eyes here, I'm going to ask the Lord in a few minutes that he would open the eyes of the dead in this room and that you would arise and you would shine and that you would give God glory. Let me tell you what you were like. If you are a Christian now, this was the past you. If you are not a Christian, this is the current you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you, if you are here and don't know Christ, that is you currently. You are pursuing your own passions. You are a slave to your lusts. You are a slave to those things that you think that they are yours, that you control them. They control you. This is what it says about you, that you are living currently in the passion of your flesh and that you are carrying out only the desires of your body and mind. You have no sensitivity towards God or the things of the Spirit. Rather, you are by nature children of wrath, meaning that the, the wrath of God is hanging over you. Right now, the powerful God of the universe is looking at you and he is angry with you every day because you are rebelling against him. Here's the bad news. If you die in the current state that you are in, the resurrection I mentioned earlier is not yours. If you die in this current state, you will experience nothing but the punishment of God forever. And that should rightfully terrify you. But there's great news to be heard today. And that is, if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved from that wrath. 
and you will be saved to what we see here in the following verses. Notice it describes us in this way. What kind of God would possibly want a a person like this? What kind of God would come after an individual like me or like you? This kind of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. That is something where you should say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen. God has been merciful and God has been loving. And the only reason that I have any claim on heaven's gifts and promises is because he has made me alive. If you are not in Christ, these promises can be yours. You just simply must believe that Christ came and died for you. Here we see that there is genuine life to be had, greater life than Tabitha experienced, raising from that deathbed. There is spiritual life raising from your dead spiritual state. Now we arrive at our final point, our third point this morning. Trust me, this is going to be a short one. Hospitality. Traveling is difficult. Um, Recently I was traveling and ate something terrible in Europe and then (laughs) spent three days basically laying in the bathroom because I didn't want to go too far away. Trust me, traveling can be difficult. And notice that Peter continually traveled around from town to town in a time when it was much more dangerous, much more difficult, and much more likely to have issues than we are now. This man was wandering around this region, encouraging those who were of the faith. This man, interestingly, is Peter, the son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah is his name. Yet he went to Joppa for the exact opposite reason that Jonah did. You remember Jonah in the Old Testament? He goes to Joppa, this port city, to take a boat as far away as he possibly can to escape from his calling to go to the Gentiles. Yet Peter is being brought here by the work of the Lord, the son of Jonah, to arrive in the same city so that what we're going to see next week, God is going to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. But I want you to notice that wherever Peter went, or later in the book, wherever Paul goes, Wherever they travel, they are always given lodging by the Christian community. They are always taken care of, and the doors are open to them. In Joppa, Peter is given a place to stay with this man, Simon the Tanner. Now, we're going to learn a lot more about this man next week. Hospitality is never taught in the book of Acts. There is never any command to do it. It is always simply assumed. This is the way of life for a Christian community. This same Peter, however, would later write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Brothers and sisters, for some reason, it is difficult for people in our culture to show hospitality towards one another. For some reason, it is a great challenge for us to do this. And that's strange to me because I want to point out that we live in a world that has very little compared to what we have who are in this room. It is quite unusual that most people would have a place to live where they're not currently bunking with another family. It is unusual that many people in this room own their own homes. It is unusual that God has given an abundance of wealth and possessions to the people in this room. In the course of human history, and even in our world today, we are, by all measures, abundantly blessed in this church to have such physical resources. And we are called to utilize these to the glory of God. So how do you do that? 
Simple things. Invite people to your home. Put my home as messy. Listen, I will invite you to my home often. My home will probably always be messy. There will be corners where our kids have made some mess that is still going to be there when you walk in the door, and I'm going to apologize for that in advance. But honestly, I would much rather have you there and there be a little bit of mess than you not be there and me to clean up the mess with the kids. It is important to open your doors to people. Don't try to entertain. Show hospitality. Bring people into your lives. What matters is not showing off all the best ways that you can cook or all the best ways you can provide, but spending time. You and your connection with that individual is more valuable than the stuff that you are going to present or give them. So if, if you ever come to my house and I cook for you, I will remind you of that. It is also important for you to remember that you can utilize your home in unique ways, like hosting a community group or having a consistent a plan of attack to meet with brothers and sisters where you say, hey, I would like to be an accountability partner with you. Would you come over before work every Tuesday and have coffee with me and we will share with one another what God is doing in our lives. You could also do things like hosting a prayer meeting at your home once in a while or asking people to come over and spend time in a day in the word. Just read the Bible with me for a couple hours. It doesn't have to be something official or on the church calendar. Just pray about how to use your home and your gifts for the betterment of the kingdom. What if you don't have a house? What if you don't have an apartment where you can invite people in? What if you have an unbelieving roommate who controls the home and you have a difficult time bringing people there? That's okay too. Hospitality doesn't mean just bringing people into your home. It can mean just giving of your time and saying, hey, guess what? Coffee's pretty cheap at the diner over there. I will meet you there for an hour or two. And me making sure to prioritize spending time serving other people with the gifts that God has given you currently. So pray about ways to use your home if you have one. Pray about ways to be intentional if you don't. Consider perhaps this coming summer hosting an intern at your house. One of the things we would like to see grow is the intern ministry. Last summer we had Cesar Rodriguez and any of you who met him were incredibly blessed by him and encouraged by him. And I am so thankful that Ray opened his home to have Cesar living there with him so that he might be able to enjoy the community here with us. A Caesar actually on Thanksgiving wrote to me and said one of the things he was thankful for was this church body. That's you. He would have never had that opportunity had somebody not opened his home. And you know what? Caesar was a great blessing and encouragement to all of us as well. He built us up and we built him up because we were able to meet together through the hospitality of one individual who opened their home. We would like to see that grow. If you are interested in hosting an intern this coming summer, speak with me as we're going to begin working those things together towards the beginning of the year. Let's just be intentional, remembering that Christ is hosp hospitable towards us. He has gone to prepare a place for us, as it says in John chapter 14. He is the one who is primarily hospitable. He has come to serve us, and he is taking us to be with him at his home. As my closing prayer, I'm simply going to read the, f uh, the words of Peter. Earlier we read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses, verse 9, about being hospitable. But allow me to close with a prayer that is simply a quote from the following two verses uh, right after Peter's plea for hospitality. And this will serve as our closing prayer today. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.